Good morning, Living Hope Church. It is awesome to be with you at the world famous to me because I love this place, Summit Grove. This is a beautiful place, and it's so awesome to be here with you. Go ahead, give God some praise. It's okay. I hear you. Praise the Lord. Uh, as Tim said, uh, my name is Pastor Ed Mejia. I am the church planting resident here at Living Hope Church, and it's been six months already. Can you believe it? Six months have flown by where me and my wife Maggie, our children, Joseph, Elijah, and Olivia have been a part of the community here at Living Hope. And I just wanted to give you a quick update before we dive into our sermon today. So uh, a couple things. In, since January, uh, Tim announced that we were starting a local cohort with other 8 to 9 pastors in the area and some of their uh, church planters. And we've been meeting every six weeks uh, since January. We have had awesome times of fellowship, awesome times of training. Uh, It's been incredible. We looked at the topic of devotion, of call, of doctrine. Uh, The last one we had was on marriage, and it was really awesome because we got to bring our wives along for this one. Uh, And so it was awesome for my wife to be uh, to be able to see where I've been at Saturday mornings every six weeks and see what I'm learning and see what we're doing. And uh, the next one is on relationships in August. So uh, Tim has done a fantastic job. All the pastors have been just incredibly encouraging uh, through the entire process. The other thing we discussed, uh, Tim and I, I, we didn't realize we never actually shared where we plan on planting. And uh, some of my life group people do know we did get to share it with them, but we wanted to share it publicly. And, and, and God's, we've been waiting. We didn't announce it in January because we wanted to wait on the Lord, right? It's always wise to wait on the Lord, amen? And so we wanted to hold on and say, okay, let's make sure, Lord, this is where you're calling us. And, and, and it's just been an increasing confidence. So the Lord's calling us to Arizona in the fall of 2022. Uh, so pray for us as we move our family uh, in the fall uh, to Arizona. We are thinking the Phoenix Tempe area is in terms of ministry and planting. Uh, as far as living, we're, we're leaning more towards Tempe at the moment. Uh, but we are excited about it. We believe God has something for us in Arizona. And we got something for Arizona too. Amen. <laughs> we got the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, and the cool thing is we started connecting with some pastors out there already. Already and and look at God. I mean, a, a year ago, my wife and I we went to to Arizona for our anniversary, and we prayed while we were out there. And and uh, this was our only prayer. Like, okay, God, this is a crazy idea, right? Going, moving our whole family to a whole other state where we have no friends and family, and planting a church. Uh, and our simple prayer was, God, if you set it up, we will go. If you will be our waymaker, <laughs> we will walk. And it's been incredible to see how God's already setting up relationships. There are pastors out there that are eager and excited to partner with us about planting a church. And so it's been fantastic. Listen, I'm not exaggerating when I say this. This has been one of the best ministries experience I've had in my entire life. And I've been in ministry since I was like a teenager. Um, And I got to tell you, everything from the gospel culture to the community here at Living Hope, the people, getting to see how the elders work together, getting to see how you guys plan and prepare with such love and care and devotion to Jesus. It has been truly, truly an encouragement to us. And we felt the love. We felt the encouragement. We feel the spiritual vitality. So thank you, Living Hope Church, on behalf of me and my family. And if I'm, I just want to give you guys a hand because you guys are a great church. Amen. Come on. Come on. Thank God for what he's doing among you. Today we're continuing our series on the attributes of God. 
And um, I got excited when they announced the series because part of my residency homework is to work through Wayne Grudem's systematic theology, right? And so I, I got this, you know, routine in, in, in my day-to-day where, like, Saturdays is my systematic theology day. So on Saturday mornings, the, the house is a little quieter. I could read through, make some notes. But I have been intentional, very intentional, because it could become homework. I went, to, I went to Bible college. I know what it feels like to do homework that has to do with the Bible, that has to do with God. And I didn't want it to just be a mental exercise. And so I had to intentionally pray, intentionally say, God, engage my heart even as I read through this. And, and the reason I, I, I bring this up is because it's easy to go into a series of the attributes of God and hear some big ideas about God. Hear some awesome truths about God. Yet only walk away with another fact about God and not really truly know God. See, I, I, I'm a, I, I like sports. I got friends who definitely love sports and they can give you stats, numbers, years, names, dates, things that happen in sports. But they don't actually know those guys. It's very much possible to know a lot about God and not actually know him. And so my prayer for us as we're diving in today, as we're continuing in this series, is that we would uh, uh, experience and get a sense that what we're learning will become real to our hearts in a very ground level kind of way. I like this quote by Jonathan Edwards where he says, It's one thing to know that honey is sweet. It's another thing to taste that honey is sweet. There's a difference between believing that a person is beautiful and having a sense of their beauty. Let's pray that as we look at these attributes, we would not only know how good God is, but we would taste it, we would sense it, we would experience it, we would be able to walk in it. Amen? So let's pray just one more time that God would open our hearts, that His Spirit would move as we go through His Word. Amen? Father, today we lean on You. We know that You guide us to all truth. Holy Spirit, move in this place. That we would get a grander view of you, Father, that would inspire worship and awe and devotion and obedience, God. That we would walk away feeling just a little bit closer to you today. That we would walk away, Father, desiring to know more, Father. We love you and we thank you for your word. And it's in your great name we pray. Amen. You ever felt, do you remember the first time you started reading the Bible? Remember how that felt? It was like looking at a whole nother world. I don't know about you, but it took me a while to even realize that cultures were different, that it was written in a different language, that customs there were happening that I had no idea about. It felt so distant. It felt so remote. remote. I don't don't know if you can relate to that, but it sometimes felt like when every time I opened the word, it was like all those things we read would belong to that world. And I wouldn't really understand how that world fit into our modern world, right? Where we have new technology, different customs. We have, you know, different governments, different agricultures. Like, we are so different from what we see in here. You know, and I've even heard atheists and non-believers argue that the Bible is simply outdated. And it's an archaic book. And it needs to be forgotten because, you know, it's not relevant to us. Do you see how different our world is? Do you see how much more we know? How smarter we are? In fact, even progressive Christianity believes that Christianity is still developing. That Christianity itself, it's still evolving. So for them, the Bible doesn't have the same authority because Christianity, according to the progressive Christian, has to be interpreted through our current culture. So so it doesn't hold the same 
wait. But how do we overcome this sense of remoteness? How do we, how do we bridge that gap between the world of the Bible and our world today? And, and J.I. Packer uh, helps us with this uh, question. In, the, in his book, Knowing God, he says this. The sense of remoteness, that distance between us and the Bible times, is an illusion which springs from seeking the link between our situation and that of various Bible characters in the wrong place. It is true that in terms of space, time, and culture, they and the historical epoch to which they belong are a very long way away from us. But the link between them and us is not found at that level. The link is God himself. For the God whom they had to do so is the same God with whom we have to do. We could sharpen the point by saying exactly the same God. For God does not change in the least particular. What J.R. Packer is saying is that despite all the things that are different between our world and the world of the Bible, God himself has not changed. And this is what makes the Bible authoritative still today, relevant for us, living and active. Today we're going to be talking about the immutability of God, the unchangeableness. Immutability means that God is unchangeable. Mutable means you can be changed. So we're going to talk about the immutability of God. And we're going to see how this is probably one of the most important attributes because it guarantees that he and his word will never change. That he is the only constant in the universe. And my hope is that by the time we're done together this morning, we would see that God is infinitely worthy and he's the only being worthy of absolute trust. So today we're going to look at what it means that God is unchangeable, but we're also going to look at the activity of God. What does that look like? What does life look like with a God like this? Man, I'm glad I brought my towel today. This attribute is important for us because even, and, 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 and here's the thing, we have to unpack it a bit because though God being unchanging is definitely comforting in many ways, and we'll see that in just a few seconds, it can also raise up some questions or concerns. Like if God, if plans and purposes are unchangeable, is it impossible for him to change his mind about something? Can I be confident in his work of salvation in me? If God is infinite, can he still be personal? If God's being is unchanging, does God have passions or emotions? Another reason this topic is important for us is because life can change radically and unfortunately times, even tragically. In any given moment, something can hit us and we can go through things and think to ourselves, man, God, something's wrong. Something's changed. God, where are you? I thought you were good. I thought you loved me. I thought you were here for me. And the only thing that can get us through those dark seasons of life is to have an anchor for the soul. This attribute adds weight to that anchor. And lastly... This attribute is important because as a church, we are called to be on mission. 
We are called to go and proclaim the gospel, to share the faith. Just like you guys did going to Maine, there is a call for us to go to our neighbors, to our school, to our jobs, and to share Jesus with others. And that could definitely be intimidating, especially in the times we're living. But the unchangeableness and activity of God is what gives us a growing confidence in the gospel message and it gives us the courage to obey in the proclamation of his good news. So let's begin by summarizing what is this attribute and unchangeableness, uh, excuse me, this attribute of unchangeableness and activity. And for that, I'm going to go with my textbook. Wayne Grudem explains it like this. Unchangeableness and activity is God's being, attributes, and eternal plan and purposes are immutable, unchangeable, yet God actively interacts with his creation, responds to his creatures, and feels emotions. Now, if you got your, uh, I don't know if you guys call them brochures or pamphlets, you know, when you came in, your bulletins, that probably what you guys call it, bulletins, you'll see that that statement is actually broken up. What I hope to do is to unpack what that actually means. So we broke those up into three parts uh, for us to follow. Now, I want to break this down, but I want you to stick with me till the end because this has real-life implications. If you're taking notes, I have five applications at the very end of these of how this plays out on a ground level, right at our front doors, in our lives, every day. And so let's begin with the first part here. God's being and attributes will never change. Let me give you two reasons why this is true. Number one, God is permanent. Pastor Matt showed us two weeks ago how God is eternal and self-existent. He showed us in Exodus 3.14 how God revealed himself to Moses while in exile from his home in Egypt. And, and if you remember that story of the burning bush when God calls Moses, you know that Moses was absolutely like fearful He was insecure. He was unsure in light of the fact that God's calling him back to Egypt to deliver his people that they might worship him. And in this conversation, God comforts and assures Moses that he's with him. So let me read this for us so that we can see why God's attributes will never change. We're going to read Exodus 3, verses 13 and 14. And it reads, Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me, they, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am, he said. Say to this people of Israel, I am has sent you. You know, there's a lot associated with a name. Like if I mentioned Bill Gates, if, you would probably think wealth, right? Billionaire. If I mention Michael Jordan, LeBron James, you're thinking basketball, champions, you know, sneakers, I don't know. If I mention Tiger Woods, you're probably thinking pro golfer. I've never met a person who named their child Hitler, right? And that's for a reason, because the name is associated with evil. There's a lot that we can gather from a person's name. And, and here, in God's name, I am who I am, we can see four significant things associated with his name. And two of them we heard just two weeks ago. First is God's eternal. The second, God is self-existent and not dependent on anything for his existence. The third thing we see is that God is creator and sustainer of all that exists. And the fourth thing we see is that God is 
immutable in his being and character and is not in the process of becoming something different. He is who he is. I am who I am, right? You know, it's, it's crazy because you ever heard like people just say sometimes, you know, it is what it is. You ever people say that before? It is what it is. When do they normally say that? When things can't change. When you can't do anything about it, right? Well, it is what it is. God is saying, I am who I am. I am not changeable. I am not changing. I am who I am today. I am who I am tomorrow. I am. And this concept is foreign to us. Let's be honest. Because everything and everyone around us changes. I mean, we're always becoming. I mean, you're not going to believe this, but when I was 14 to like about 19 years old, I was a a break dancer, like serious b-boy in competitions all the time. And I still got a little something, but I've changed. Break dancing doesn't feel the same anymore. Breaking bones. But you could ask my wife, in these last 11 years of us being married, I have changed, right? She knows I have changed. I've seen her change as well. But look, Psalms 102, 25 and 27 shows us how there is a a real separation between creator and created just on the basis that we change. Let me read it for you. Psalms 102, 25 through 27 says it like this. Of old, you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away. But you are the same and your years have no end. Our God is permanent. Permanent. The second reason why God's being and attributes will never change is because God is perfect. God is perfect. Matthew 5, 48, Jesus is speaking to the disciples and the crowds on the Sermon of the Mount, and he closes the sermon with this one statement. He says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In the Zondervan Bible Dictionary, they define immutability and unchangeable like this. It says, it's defined as the perfection of God by which he is devoid of all change in essence, attributes, consciousness, will, and promise. No change is possible in God because all change must be for better or for worse. And God is absolute perfection. No cause for change exists in God, either in himself or or outside of himself. You can't improve perfect. Can't make it better than that. God is perfect in every way. Perfect in wisdom. Perfect in knowledge. Perfect in love. Perfect in justice. Perfect in truthfulness. We saw last week that he's even perfect in faithfulness. Now, when we think about God's perfection... Yes, it's deeply encouraging, but it's also deeply problematic, wouldn't you say? Because if God is perfect, that means that his standard is perfection. And we have all missed that mark, right? We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We miss the standard of perfection. That's what Bible call, the Bible calls sin. But God's perfection is also our greatest hope. 
Because in his perfection, he shows us a perfect love, a perfect mercy and grace by sending his son to be a perfect sacrifice by his death on the cross for us. 1 Peter 1.14 says it like this, that you were ransomed not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was a perfect sacrifice. Hebrews 10.14 tells us that, that, that for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time, those who are being sanctified. I'm telling you, I am getting riled up over here because that is good news for us. Because I like it. I, I like what we're seeing here because what we're seeing is that God's perfection guarantees for us that what he started in you and I, he's surely going to finish. Our God is not mediocre. He will finish what he started in us. And I love how Paul says it. Can I preach this for a minute? He says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. Amen. God is good. Praise be to God. He is permanent. He's perfect. And that's why his being and attributes will never change. He is the great I am. And it's that very reality that God is perfect that ensures that his eternal plan, purposes, and promises will never change. So if you're taking notes, we're going to move on to the second part. We're going to look at how God's plans and purposes and promises don't change. And and look, let me just throw a couple of of scriptures of you. Uh, Not only that, these slides, I got a lot of scripture references. You will find them online, free PDF. Don't worry about it. You could download it and catch up if you missed anything, okay? Uh, But but let's go through this. Uh, Let's see what the Word says about God's plans. Psalms 33, 11. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. The plans of his heart to all generations. Psalms 33, 11. Isaiah 46, 9 through 11 says this about God's purposes. He says, I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. The Bible says about his promises in Numbers twenty three nineteen. It says that God is not man that he should lie. Or the son of man. That he should change his mind. You know, as I was preparing, I, I, was, <laughs> I was like pretty encouraged by this reality. God is a planner. But he plans differently from the way we do. See, if you've ever been around somebody who's a good planner, they are preparing everything, right? They are meticulous about the details. And if they are a really serious planner, they're even building contingency plans in case something goes wrong, Right? As they say, if anything can go wrong, it will go wrong. So you're always planning, but those planners plan without a knowledge of what could happen. God doesn't plan that way. God plans with perfect knowledge. He knows exactly what's going to happen. But what is God's eternal plan? Well, it's an eternal plan of salvation and restoration. A plan that was set into motion before the foundation of the earth. And I just want to expand on this plan just a little bit. 
It starts in, in before creation, right? This is all a part of his plan. Creation was a part of his plan. The, this gospel that unfolds in the word is a part of his plan. And I don't know how you guys word it here, but you guys know the four C's of the gospel, right? The creation, crash, cross, and crown. Let me break that down for you. You might use a different word for crash, but that's okay. The creation. God created us for his glory and made us to fellowship, right? Made us perfect, Perfect union to represent him. We have been given the image of God. Sin entered the picture when our parents, Adam and Eve, fell into sin. And that sin separated us from God. Not only did it separate us from God, it fractured the universe. It changed everything. It polluted and corrupted everything. But God had already had a plan in motion. It, it's, it's all a part of the plan because after that, he comes the cross, right? Comes the cross. Jesus redeems us by laying his life down. He comes and lives a perfect life we couldn't live and dies a death that we deserve to die so that we would be forgiven of our sins before the Father and we would also receive his We would receive his righteousness. He takes our place. We get his. And in his resurrection, the the resurrection of Christ is the very life in us now. And now we're united to Christ. Death is defeated. Sin is broken in our lives. And we are now walking with him. But the story doesn't end there. The plan doesn't end there coming back with a crown and he's coming back to take us back and redeem us fully and that day he will make all things new fully separating us even from the of sin i cannot wait for that day god having a plan should encourage us church you know in business they say a goal without a plan is just a wish what do they mean by that Well, if you have a goal and you don't have a plan, that means you don't have action steps. You're not doing anything. But the fact that God has a purpose and a plan means that we can trust in a God who takes action. And he's one who carries this plan out. Listen, anybody ever been put on a diet plan? Right? It's a plan that somebody else writes for you to execute. That's the worst part of it, right? That we have to do it. This is not one of those plans. This is one of those plans that God himself carries out. Let me show you in Ephesians 1, verses 7 through 10, it says it like this. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. There's the promise. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. God's plan is carried out by God's very own hand. And here's my point. God's eternal plans and purposes and promises don't change because it's Jesus who carries them out. It's Jesus who's working it all out. God's purposes are fulfilled, plans executed, promises kept by Jesus himself. We don't serve a God who leaves it on us. He was their creation. He was promised that that he would come and defeat sin at the crash. He was the perfect sacrifice on the cross and he'll be returning with the crown. Jesus will never fail because he has never failed. So we see that God's being doesn't change. 
his eternal plan, purposes, and promises will never change? But the question does come up, well, does that mean that God responds to every situation the same way? Well, the short answer is no. There are examples in the Bible that it appears as though God's purposes change, like Exodus, right? Exodus 32, you see where God withdraws from bringing judgment to the Israelites because Moses intervened in prayer. Or maybe, you know, where God adds years to Hezekiah's life in Isaiah 38. Or or how about Genesis 6, where it says that the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth and it grieved him to his heart. Well, Wayne Grudem helps us with this. He says, what we are seeing in these instances is a true expression of God's present attitude or intention with respect to the situation as it exists at the moment. Essentially, God's respond, God responds differently to different situations. In the book of Jonah, we see that God relents from bringing disaster to the people of Nineveh in response to their repentance. Jonah 3.10. So in this example, we see that God's response does change as the situation changes. And, and I know you heard, uh, some people like to argue ab- about this, this Jonah 3.10 verse where it says that God repented of the evil that he had said. Some people misunderstand that to think that God actually had something to repent of. We know he can't repent of anything. He's holy, right? But what you hear in that is anthropomorphic language. And that's just another way of saying that they ascribed human forms or attributes to a being or a thing, not human, especially a deity. It's a, it's a literary tool to help us to understand what's going, what, what God feels at the moment, what's, what he's saying, but it's not that God actually repents. What we see is that God's treatment of people corresponds to their actions and characters. When the righteous, right, do wickedly, his holiness requires that his treatment of them must change. I'm sure there's another question in your mind then. So does God change his mind? Well, depends what we mean when we say that, right? Because when a situation changes, such as when people repent or pray or both, we see that God's present attitude towards that changes as well. But his long-term purposes never change. So it's important to note that when we talk about God changing his mind, as we would say, it's very different from the way you and I change our mind. Because for us to change our mind about something, we got to either learn something new, see a new perspective, or feel something different about something or someone. But that is not the case with God because he knows all things. He can't change his mind if he knows everything. And in light of God responding differently in different situations, it leads us to our third and final point. And that is that God actively interacts with his creation. We do not worship a deistic God. And if you don't know what that word deistic is, deism is the belief that there is a supreme being or creator who does not intervene with the universe. Kind of like a watchmaker. Once he sets the watch, the clock to work, boom, it's on and running. He keeps his hands out and he's done. That's not our God. Our God interacts. Immutability, the immutability of God, shouldn't be confused with immobility. As if there were no movement in God. God's unchangeableness is consistent with constant activity and perfect freedom. 
We see it all over the Bible. God created. He performs miracles. He sustains the universe. He interacts with his creations through the word of God. And I'll give you a couple of examples. Psalms 139.13 says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. God interacts. He interacted with you in your conception, in your birth. As he designed you, he knitted you himself i praise you because i'm fearfully and wonderfully made hebrews 1 3 says this he is the radiant talking about jesus of the glory of god and the exact imprint of his nature check this out and he upholds the universe by the word of his power everything we see right now is being upheld by the word of of his power he is actively holding the universe together by the word of his power that is amazing but here's one of my favorite ones john 14 it says and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory glory as of the son from the father full of grace and truth god interacts with us he doesn't stay away from us he intervenes he interacts he comes and now we also see that god responds right we have many examples of the ways that god's response responds to us he answers prayer he fights for his people he dwells with the contrite and the lowly in spirit he responds This is why we pray. This is why we can ask and seek and knock because he will respond. In fact, uh, the verse, the, the Bible says that he resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. God is actively working in both. And as the situation changes, as we go from pride to humility, we go from resistance to grace. God is active and responsive to us. God does feel emotions, right? Isaiah 62, 5 says that God rejoices. uh, Psalms 78, 40 says that he is grieved. Exodus 32 says that he is, uh, 32, 10 says his wrath burns hot against enemies. And Isaiah 54, 8 says his love he loves with an everlasting love. Now, I know we just said that God responds and God has emotions, and, and, I'm, and I'm trying my best to make sure that we keep that separation because those has emotions like we have emotions. They're not just like our emotions. And I want to encourage us to avoid the mistake of reading into God our knowledge of ourselves and assume that God is just a great, greater version of who we are. In other words, though we have emotions, it does not mean that God's emotions are the same as our emotions. And for that reason, I have to bring up this this theological term called divine impassibility. Often, uh, this is misunderstood to think that God does not have passion or emotions, right? But divine impassibility, again, is another one of those attributes that distinguishes creator and created in that God does not have changeable human emotions so let me explain i wake up in bed 
and it's a beautiful day, I wake up happy. I hear the birds chirping. I smell coffee downstairs. Everything is great. I don't have to go to work today. Like, everything is awesome. I hop out of my bed happily because I'm going to have the greatest day ever. And as I turn and, and go to the bathroom, I stub my toe. And suddenly, this happiness I woke up with turns into instant rage. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Suddenly, the birds ain't chirping no more. I'm hurt. I, I, I have something outside of me that harmed me, that caused my emotions to shift from happiness to full-on anger. That doesn't happen to God. God cannot suffer harm. Therefore, he cannot experience the same shift of emotion that you and I feel. Are you, are you understanding what I'm saying? Let me give you an example. My wife and I, I love her, she loves me. Deeply. But there are some days where things feel off, right? Like we had a rough day at work, you know, things are just not where we want them to be, we're stressed out, and, and little by little, we, we maybe didn't talk too much, and, and, and we start feeling that, that strange drift emotionally, from like that hot passion of like honeymoon to like, uh, man, uh, we're going to get through this, right? Like that happens in relationships, okay? That doesn't happen with God. God does not change how he feels about you based on your day and your emotions and what you did and didn't do. We cannot manipulate God's emotions. We cannot coerce his emotions. We can't make him feel anything that he didn't feel out of his own choice, out of his own volition. God does not have emotions that are subject to change. Rather, he has perfections, true, genuine emotions that are constant and do not shift. Let me give you an example out of the Bible. The Bible says that God's love is eternal, right? John says in 1 John 4, 8, that God is love. Therefore, God's love for us, excuse me, God loves us with a perfect, unchanging, everlasting love. Let me lay it out like this. He cannot love you anymore on your good days, and he will not love you any less on your worst days. God loves you fully, perfectly, and passionately. And nothing outside of him, including you, can change that. So when God feels grief or sorrow over the sinfulness of people, those feelings don't surprise him. Those feelings are not forced on him by some external circumstance outside of his control. But rather, those are God's emotions, God's genuine response to events he ordained would come to pass. So what do we see today? We see that God will never change. That his purposes, plans, and promises will never change. We see that God is active in our world and he responds differently to different situations. We see that he has emotions, but they're not like our emotions, right? They're not like changeable human emotions. So how do we live with an unchangeable God like this? Well, let me give you five quick applications. The first is this. We should trust God more than we trust ourselves. Why? We're still becoming. We cannot trust ourselves and be sure that we are doing and being what's ultimately best for us. Because at any moment, we can change 
based on what we see, hear, feel, and experience. And I say this with a lot of love and empathy because it's true of me too. Nobody has lied to you more than you have. We need truth to live. We need truth, and that truth can't be found within self. I can't find truth in me. I am biased. We need someone who is outside of us, someone who is constant, clear, unbiased, but also someone who is perfectly good, perfectly loving, and perfectly kind to help us see what we can't see on our own. I like how Grudem ends that chapter. He says, Our faith and hope and knowledge all ultimately depend on a person who is infinitely worthy of trust. Because he is absolutely and eternally unchanging in his being, perfections, purposes, and promise. Friends, look to Jesus today. Right? Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He'll direct your steps. Hebrews 13, 8 tells us that Jesus is the perfect person for it. You know why he's the perfect person to trust? Because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Second application is we stand confidently on his unchanging word. Because God is unchangeable. And he's active. We can stand on his word. And now, imagine for a moment that the opposite was true. That God could change. If, even if that would be possible for a second. Just imagine how terrifying that would actually be. The fact that God's purposes and promises could even possibly change would be anxious anxiety at levels we've never experienced before. Spurgeon says it like this. Charles Spurgeon says, a changeable God would be a terror to the righteous. They would have no sure anchorage, and amid a changing world, they would be driven to and fro in perpetual fear of shipwreck. Our hearts leap for joy as we bow before the one who has never broken his word or changed his purpose. Hebrews 10.23 calls us to hold fast our confession the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. The third is this. Because God is unchangeable and active and active in our lives, we persevere in testing, temptation, and trial. James chapter 1, James is reminding the saints that amidst all the trials and all the temptations, we can remember one thing. James 1, 16, 17 says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers, Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Listen, temptation makes promises it can't keep. It offers joys it can't fully give. But what James is telling them, listen, every good and perfect gift comes from the same source, and that will never change. He's basically saying that everything I could ever really truly want, every good, perfect, enjoyable, and pleasurable gift comes from God. Temptation has nothing for me. It has nothing to offer. I know where my help comes from. If my help is always coming from the Lord, temptation has nothing for me. The fourth thing is we can rest in God's eternal love for us. No matter what we face, no matter what we've done, 
No matter what we might disagree about God, no matter how good or bad our performances as a, you know, son, daughter, father, mother, husband, wife, no matter how far you've strayed or how much you're doubting God, even right now, God will always love you. No matter what tragedy you face, what suffering you experience, you can know God loves you and dwells with you. And lastly, because God is unchangeable and active, we share the gospel knowing God is with us and he accomplishes his purposes. God's word is living and active. God's word will not return to him void, but will accomplish what he set out for it to do. And just like we read Moses' story at the burning bush, just like he was sent despite his fears and insecurities, we too are sent to proclaim the gospel and make disciples. And I love this. The same God that reassures Moses promises to be with us. He is the great I am. And in fact, Jesus himself promises in the context of the Great Commission the very same thing that God promised Moses in in, in the burning bush. In Matthew 28, he says, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Friends, maybe this is your first time hearing about a God like this. Um... Hear me, our God responds to faith and humility. And today I want to invite you as we sing in a few moments to put your hope in Christ. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up. Today I pray that that you would surrender to the power of his unchanging and everlasting love. Or maybe you're here and you believe in Jesus, you believe in Christ, but you've realized you've been trusting in yourself in some areas. You've leaned on your own understanding and, and lived by your emotions that, that, that shift and change. I mean, this might be the reason why you're so anxious and depressed and angry and discouraged because you've chosen to trust the shifting sands of self. But the good news is that Jesus is our rock. A rock upon which we can build our lives confidently on. I pray that today you would look to Jesus, surrender to him, and receive his unchanging love for you. Would you stand with me as we sing this next song? I want to encourage you just to, as you heard all this, settle on the fact that God is a constant. That he is infinitely worthy of our trust. That we can build our lives upon him. Um... After we sing this song, I want to also, as you're singing, while you're singing, actually, just encourage you also to prepare your hearts as we're going to be receiving the Lord's Supper today as well. But as we're singing, think on the fact that God's love for you will never change. Let's sing to the Lord.